0: Chapter Five: The Pandora, Part Two, of the Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of H.M.S. Bounty, Its Cause and Consequences. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Haley Flag. The Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of H.M.S. Bounty by Sir John Barrow. Chapter 5, Part 2. It is an awful moment when a ship takes her last heel, just before going down. When the Pandora sunk, the surgeon says, the crew had just time to leap overboard, accompanying it with most dreadful yell. The cries of the men drowning in the water was at first awful in the extreme, but as they sunk and became faint, they died away by degrees. How accurately has Byron described the whole progress of a shipwreck to the final catastrophe? He might have been a spectator of the Pandora at the moment of her foundering, when she gave a heel and then a lurch to port, and, going down head foremost, sunk. Then rose from sea to sky the wild farewell, then shrieked the timid and stood still the brave. Then some leaped overboard with dreadful yell, as eager to anticipate their grave, and the sea yawned around her like a hell. And down she sucked with her the whirling wave, like one who grapples with his enemy and strives to strangle him before he die. And first, one universal shriek there rushed, louder than the loud ocean, like a crash of echoing thunder. And then all was hushed, save the wild wind and the remorseless dash of billows. But at intervals, there gushed, accompanied with a convulsive splash, a solitary shriek, the bubbling cry of some strong swimmer in his agony. On the sandy quay which fortunately presented itself, the shipwrecked seamen hauled up the boats to repair those that were damaged and to stretch canvas round the gunwales, the better to keep out the sea from breaking into them. The heat of the sun and the reflection from the sand are described as excruciating, and the thirst of the men was rendered intolerable, from their stomachs being filled with salt water in the length of time they had to swim before being picked up, Mr. Hamilton says they were greatly disturbed in the night by the irregular behavior of one of the seamen, named Connell, which made them suspect he had got drunk with some wine that had been saved. But it turned out that the excruciating torture he suffered from thirst had induced him to drink salt water, by which means he went mad and died in the sequel of the voyage. It seems a small keg of water and some biscuits had been thrown into one of the boats, which they found, by calculation, would be sufficient to last sixteen days, on an allowance of two wine glasses of water per day to each man, and a very small quantity of bread, the weight of which was accurately ascertained by a musket ball and a pair of wooden scales made for each boat. The crew and the prisoners were now distributed among the four boats. At Bligh's mountainous island, they entered a bay where swarms of natives came down and made signs for their landing. But this they declined to do, on which an arrow was discharged and struck one of the boats. And as the savages were seen to be collecting their bows and arrows, a volley of muskets, a few of which happened to be in the boats, was discharged, which put them to flight. While sailing among the islands and near the shore, they now and then stopped to pick up a few oysters and procure a little fresh water. On the 2nd of December, they passed the northwest point of New Holland and launched into the Great Indian Ocean, having a voyage of about a thousand miles still to perform. It will be recollected that Captain Bly's people received warmth and comfort by wringing out their clothes in salt water. The same practice was adopted by the crews of the Pandora's boats. But the doctor observes that this wetting their bodies with salt water is not advisable, if protracted beyond three or four days, as after that time the great absorption from the skin that takes place taints the fluids with the bitter part of salt water, so that the saliva becomes intolerable in the mouth. Their mouths, indeed, he says, became so parched that few attempted to eat the slender allowance of bread. He also remarks that as the sufferings of the people continued, their temper became cross and savage in the captain's boat it is stated one of the mutineers took to praying but that the captain suspecting the purity of his doctrines and unwilling that he should have a monopoly of the business gave prayers himself on the thirteenth they saw the island of timor and the next morning landed and got some water and a few small fish from the natives and on the night of the fifteenth anchored opposite the fort of kupang Nothing could exceed the kindness and hospitality of the governor and other Dutch officers of this settlement in affording every possible assistance and relief in their distressed condition. Having remained here three weeks, they embarked on the 6th of October on board the Rembang, Dutch Indiamen, and on the 30th anchored at Samarang, where they were agreeably surprised to find their little tender, which they had so long given up for lost. On the 7th of November, they arrived at Batavia, where Captain Edwards agreed with the Dutch East India Company to divide the whole of the ship's company and prisoners among four of their ships proceeding to Europe, the latter the captain took with him in the Vredenberg. But finding his master ship Gorgon at the Cape, he transshipped himself and the prisoners and proceeded in her to Spithead, where he arrived on the 19th of June, 1792. Captain Edwards in his meager narrative takes no more notice of his prisoners with regard to the mode in which they were disposed of at Kupang and Batavia than he does when the Pandora went down. In fact, he suppresses all information respecting them from the day in which they were consigned to Pandora's box. From this total indifference toward these unfortunate men and their almost unparalleled sufferings, Captain Edwards must be set down as a man whose only feeling was to stick to the letter of his instructions, and rigidly to adhere to what he considered the strict line of his duty, that he was a man of a cold, phlegmatic disposition, whom no distress could move, and whose feelings were not easily disturbed by the sufferings of his fellow creatures. He appears to have been one of those mortals who might say, with Manfred, "'My spirit walked not with the souls of men.'" My joys, my griefs, my passions, and my powers made me a stranger. Though I wore the form, I had no sympathy with breathing flesh. There seems to have been a general feeling at and before the court-martial that Captain Edwards had exercised a harsh, unnecessary, and undue degree of severity on his prisoners. It is the custom, sanctioned no doubt by long usage, to place in irons all such as may have been guilty of mutiny in a ship of war, and the necessity of so doing is obvious enough to prevent, in the most effectual manner, communication with the rest of the ship's company, who might be contaminated by their intercourse, with such mischievous and designing men, men whose crime is of that dye, that, if found guilty, they have little hope to escape the punishment of death, to which a mutineer must, by the naval articles of war, be sentenced. No alternative being left to a court-martial in such a case but to pronounce a sentence of acquittal or of death in the present case however most of the prisoners had surrendered themselves many of them had taken no active part in the mutiny and others had been forcibly compelled to remain in the ship it was not likely therefore that any danger could arise from indulging them occasionally and in turns with a few hours of fresh air on deck as little danger was there of their escaping where indeed could they escape too especially when the ship was going down at a great distance from any shore and the nearest one known to be inhabited by savages All or most of them were desirous of getting home and throwing themselves on God and their country. The captain, however, had no compunctious visitings of nature to shake his purpose, which seems to have been to keep them strictly in irons during the whole passage and to deliver them over in that state on his arrival in England. Perhaps the circumstance of the crime of piracy, being superadded to that of mutiny, may have operated on his stern nature and induced him to inflict a greater severity of punishment than he might otherwise have done, and which he certainly did far beyond the letter and spirit of his instructions he might have considered that in all ages and among all nations with the exception of some of the greek states note eighteen piracy has been held in the utmost abhorrence and those guilty of it treated with singular and barbarous severity and that the most sanguinary laws were established for the protection of person and property in maritime adventure the laws of alleron which were composed under the immediate direction of our richard i and became the common usage among maritime states whose vessels passed through British seas, are conceived in a spirit of the most barbarous cruelty. End note nineteen. Thus, if a poor pilot, through ignorance, lost the vessel, he was either required to make full satisfaction to the merchant for damages sustained, or to lose his head. In the case of wrecks, where the Lord of the Coast, something like our present Vice Admiral should be found to be in league with the pilots and run the ship on the rocks in order to get a salvage the said lord the salvers and all concerned are declared to be accursed and excommunicated and punished as thieves and robbers and the pilot condemned to be hanged upon a high gibbet which is to abide and remain to succeeding ages on the place where erected as a visible caution to other ships sailing thereby nor was the fate of the lord of the coast less severe his property was to be confiscated and himself fastened to a post in the midst of his own mansion which being fired at the four corners were all to be burned together the walls thereof demolished and the spot on which it stood be converted into a market-place for the sale only of hogs and swine to all posterity these and many other barbarous usages were transferred into the institutions of wisby which formed the jus mercatorum for a long period and in which great care was taken for the security of ships against their crews Among other articles are the following. Whoever draws a sword upon the master of a vessel, or willfully falsifies the compass, shall have his right hand nailed to the mast. Whoever behaves riotously shall be punished by being keel-hauled. Whoever is guilty of rebellion or mutiny shall be thrown overboard. For the suppression of piracy, the Portuguese, in their early intercourse with India, had a summary punishment, and accompanied it with a terrible example to deter others from the commission of the crime. Whenever they took a pirate ship, they instantly hanged every man, carried away the sails, rudder, and everything that was valuable in the ship, and left her to be buffeted about by winds and waves, with the carcasses of the criminals dangling from the yards, a horrid object of terror to all who might chance to fall in with her. Even to this day, a spice of the laws of Oleron still remains in the Maritime Code of European nations, as far as regards mutiny and piracy and a feeling of this kind may have operated on the mind of captain edwards especially as a tendency even to mutiny or mutinous expressions are considered by the usage of the service as justifying the commander of a ship of war to put the offenders in irons besides the treatment of bligh whose admirable conduct under the unparalleled sufferings of himself and all who accompanied him in the open boat had roused the people of england to the highest pitch of indignation against christian and his associates in which edwards no doubt participated the following letter of mr peter haywood to his mother removes all doubt as to the character and conduct of this officer it is an artless empathetic tale and as his amiable sister says breathes not a syllable inconsistent with truth and honour batavia november twentieth seventeen ninety one my ever honoured and dearest mother At length the time has arrived when you are once more to hear from your ill-fated son, whose conduct at the capture of that ship, in which it was my fortune to embark, has, I fear, from what has since happened to me, been grossly misrepresented to you by Lieutenant Bly, who, by not knowing the real cause of my remaining on board, naturally suspected me, unhappily for me, to be a coadjutor in the mutiny. But I never, to my knowledge, whilst under his command, behaved myself in a manner unbecoming the station I occupied, nor so much as even entertained a thought derogatory to his honour, so as to give him the least grounds for entertaining an opinion of me so ungenerous and undeserved. For I flatter myself, he cannot give a character of my conduct, whilst I was under his tuition, that could merit the slightest scrutiny. O oh, my dearest mother, I hope you have not so easily credited such an account of me. Do but let me vindicate my conduct, and declare to you the true cause of my remaining in the ship and you will then see how little I deserve censure, and how I have been injured by so gross an aspersion. I shall then give you a short and cursory account of what has happened to me since. But I am afraid to say a hundredth part of what I have got in store, for I am not allowed the use of writing materials, if known, so that this is done by stealth. And if it should ever come to your hands, it will, I hope, have the desired effect of removing your uneasiness on my account, when I assure you, before the face of God— of my innocence of what is laid to my charge. How I came to remain on board was thus. The morning the ship was taken, it being my watch below, happening to awake just after daylight, and looking out of my hammock, I saw a man sitting upon the arm-chest in the main hatchway, with a drawn cutlass in his hand, the reason of which I could not divine. So I got out of bed, and inquired of him what was the cause of it. He told me that Mr. Christian, assisted by some of the ship's company, had seized the captain and put him in confinement. "'had taken the command of the ship "'and meant to carry Bly home a prisoner "'in order to try him by court-martial "'for his long, tyrannical, and impressive conduct to his people. "'I was quite thunderstruck, "'and hurrying into my berth again "'told one of my messmates, "'whom I awakened out of his sleep, what had happened. "'Then, dressing myself, I went up the fore-hatchway "'and saw what he had told me was but too true. "'And again I asked some of the people who were under arms "'what was going to be done with the captain, "'who was then on the larboard side of the quarter-deck, with his hands tied behind his back, and Mr. Christian alongside him with a pistol and drawn bayonet. I now heard a very different story, and that the captain was to be sent ashore to Tufoa in the launch, and that those who would not join Mr. Christian might either accompany the captain, or would be taken in irons to Otaheite and left there. The relation of two stories so different left me unable to judge which could be the true one, but seeing them hoisting the boats out, it seemed to prove the latter." in this trying situation young and experienced as i was and without an adviser every person being as it were infatuated and not knowing what to do i remained for a while a silent spectator of what was going on and after revolving the matter in my mind i determined to choose what i thought the lesser of two evils and stay by the ship for i had no doubt that those who went on shore in the launch would be put to death by the savage natives whereas the otaheitans being a humane and generous race one might have a hope of being kindly received, and remain there until the arrival of some ship which seemed to silly me, the most consistent with reason and rectitude. While this resolution possessed my mind, at the same time lending my assistance to hoist out the boats, the hurry and confusion affairs were in, and thinking my intention just, I never thought of going to Mr. Bly for advice. Besides, what confirmed me in it was, my seeing two experienced officers, when ordered into the boat by Mr. Christian, desire his permission to remain in the ship, one of whom my own messmate, Mr. Hayward, and I being assisting to clear the launch of yams, he asked me what I intended to do. I told him to remain in the ship. Now this answer I imagine he has told Mr. Bly I made to him, from which, together with my not speaking to him that morning, his suspicions of me have arisen, construing my conduct into what is foreign to my nature. Thus, my dearest mother, it was all owing to my youth and unadvised inexperience but has been interpreted into villainy and disregard of my country's laws, the ill effects of which I at present, and still am to, labour under for some months longer. And now, after what I have asserted, I may still once more retrieve my injured reputation, be again reinstated in the affection and favour of the most tender of mothers, and be still considered as her ever-dutiful son. I was not undeceived in my erroneous decision till too late, which was after the captain was in the launch. For while I was talking to the master at arms, one of the ringleaders in the affair, my other messmate whom I had left in his hammock in the berth, mr Stewart, came up to me and asked me if I was not going in the launch. I replied no; upon which he told me not to think of such a thing as remaining behind, but take his advice and go down below with him to get a few necessary things, and make haste to go with him into the launch; adding that, by remaining in the ship, I should incur an equal share of guilt with the mutineers themselves. I reluctantly followed his advice. I say reluctantly, because I knew no better, and was foolish. And the boat swimming very deep in the water, the land being far distant, the thoughts of being sacrificed by the natives, and the self-consciousness of my first intention being just, all these considerations almost staggered my resolution. However, I preferred my companion's judgment to my own, and we both jumped down the main hatchway to prepare ourselves for the boat but no sooner were we in the berth than the master-at-arms ordered the sentry to keep us both in the berth till he should receive orders to release us we desired the master-at-arms to acquaint mr bligh of our intention which we had reason to think he never did nor were we permitted to come on deck until the launch was a long way astern i now when too late saw my error at the latter end of may we got to an island to the southward of tahiti called Tobue. Where they intended to make a settlement, but finding no stock there of any kind, they agreed to go to Tahiti and, after procuring hogs and fowls, to return to Tabua and remain. So, on the sixth of June, we arrived at Tahiti, where I was in hopes I might find an opportunity of running away and remaining on shore, but I could not effect it, as there was always too good a lookout kept to prevent any such steps being taken, and besides, they had all sworn that should any one make his escape they would force the natives to restore him, and would then shoot him as an example to the rest. Well knowing that any one by remaining there might be the means, should a ship arrive, of discovering their intended place of abode. Finding it therefore impracticable, I saw no other alternative but to rest as content as possible, and return to Tabua, and there wait till the masts of bounty should be taken out, and then take the boat which might carry me to Tahiti, and disable those remaining from pursuit." End note twenty, but providence so ordered it that we had no occasion to try our fortune at such a hazard for upon returning there and remaining till the latter end of august in which time a fort was almost built but nothing could be effected and as the natives could not be brought to friendly terms and with whom we had many skirmishes and narrow escapes from being cut off by them and what was still worse internal broils and discontent these things determined part of the people to leave the island and go to tahiti Which was carried by a majority of votes. This being carried into execution on the twenty second of September, and being anchored in Matayai Bay, the next morning my messmate, Mr. Stewart, and I went on shore to the house of an old landed proprietor, our former friend, and being now set free from a lawless crew, determined to remain as much apart from them as possible, and wait patiently for the arrival of a ship. Fourteen more of the bounty's people came likewise on shore, and Mr. Christian and eight men went away with the ship but God knows whither. Whilst we remained here, we were treated by our kind and friendly natives, with a generosity and humanity almost unparalleled, and such as we could hardly have expected from the most civilized people. To be brief, having remained here till the latter end of March, 1791, on the 26th of that month, His Majesty's Ship Pandora arrived, and had scarcely anchored, when my messmate and I went on board, and made ourselves known." and having learnt from one of the natives who had been off in a canoe that our former messmate mr hayward now promoted to the rank of lieutenant was on board we asked for him supposing he might prove the assertions of our innocence but he like all worldlings when raised a little in life received us very coolly and pretended ignorance of our affairs yet formerly he and i were bound in brotherly love and friendship Appearances being so much against us, we were ordered to be put in irons and looked upon—oh, infernal words!—as piratical villains! A rebuff so severe as this was, to a person unused to troubles, would perhaps have been unsupportable, but to me, who had now been long inured to the frowns of fortune, and feeling myself supported by an inward consciousness of not deserving it, it was received with the greatest composure, and a full determination to bear it with patience.' My sufferings, however, I have not power to describe, but though they are great, yet I thank God for enabling me to bear them without repining. I endeavour to qualify my affliction with these three considerations. First, my innocence not deserving them, secondly, that they cannot last long, and thirdly, that the change may be for the better. The first improves my hope, the second, my patience, and the third, my courage. I am young in years, but old in what the world calls adversity and it has had such an effect as to make me consider it the most beneficial incident that could have occurred at my age. It has made me acquainted with three things which are little known, and as little believed by any but those who have felt their effects. First, the villainy and censoriousness of mankind. Secondly, the futility of all human hopes. And thirdly, the happiness of being content in whatever station it may please Providence to place me in. In short, it has made me more of a philosopher than many years of a life spent in ease and pleasure would have done as they will no doubt proceed to the greatest lengths against me i being the only surviving officer and they most inclined to believe a prior story all that can be said to confute it will probably be looked upon as mere falsity and invention should that be my unhappy case and they resolve upon my destruction as an example to futurity may god enable me to bear my fate with the fortitude of a man conscious that misfortune, not any misconduct, is the cause, and that the Almighty can attest my innocence. Yet why should I despond? I have, I hope, still a friend in that providence which hath preserved me amidst many greater dangers, and upon whom alone I now depend for safety. God will always protect those who deserve it. These are the sole considerations which have enabled me to make myself easy and content under my past misfortunes." twelve more of the people who were at otaheite having delivered themselves up there was a sort of prison built on the after part of the quarter-deck into which we were all put in close confinement with both legs and both hands in irons and were treated with great rigour not being allowed ever to get out of this den and being obliged to eat drink sleep and obey the calls of nature here you may form some idea of the disagreeable situation i must have been in Unable as I was to help myself, being deprived of the use of both my legs and hands, but by no means adequate to the reality. On the ninth of May we left Otaheite, and proceeded to the friendly islands, and about the beginning of August got in amongst the reefs of New Holland, to endeavour to discover a passage through them, but it was not effected, for the Pandora, ever unlucky, and as if devoted by heaven to destruction, was driven by a current upon the patch of a reef and on which, there being a heavy surf, she was soon almost bulged to pieces. But having thrown all the guns on one side overboard, and the tide flowing at the same time, she beat over the reef into a basin, and brought up in fourteen or fifteen fathoms. But she was so much damaged while on the reef, that imagining she would go to pieces every moment, we had contrived to wrench ourselves out of our irons, and applied to the captain to have mercy on us, and suffer us to take our chance for the preservation of our lives." but it was all in vain. He was even so inhuman as to order us all to be put in irons again, though the ship was expected to go down every moment, being scarcely able to keep her under with all the pumps at work. In this miserable situation, with an expected death before our eyes, without the least hope of relief, and in the most trying state of suspense, we spent the night, the ship being by the hand of Providence kept up till the morning. The boats by this time had all been prepared— and as the captain and officers were coming upon the poop, or roof, of our prison, to abandon the ship, the water being then up to the combings of the hatchways, we again implored his mercy, upon which he sent the corporal and an armourer down to let some of us out of irons, but three only were suffered to go up, and the scuttle being then clapped on, and the master at arms upon it, the armourer had only time to let two persons out of irons, the rest except three, letting themselves out two of these three went down with them on their hands and the third was picked up she now began to heel over to port so very much that the master at arm sliding overboard and leaving the scuttle vacant we all tried to get up and i was at last out but three the water was then pouring in at the bulkhead scuttles yet i succeeded in getting out and was scarcely in the sea when i could see nothing above it but the cross-trees and nothing around me but a scene of the greatest distress i took a plank being stark naked and swam towards an island about three miles off but was picked up on my passage by one of the boats when we got ashore to the small sandy quay we found there were thirty-four men drowned four of whom were prisoners and among these was my unfortunate messmate mr stewart ten of us and eighty-nine of the pandora's crew were saved when a survey was made of what provisions had been saved they were found to consist of two or three bags of bread two or three beakers of water, and a little wine. So we subsisted three days upon two wine glasses of water and two ounces of bread per day. On the 1st of September we left the island, and on the 16th arrived at Kupang on the island of Timor, having been on short allowance 18 days. We were put in confinement in the castle, where we remained till October, and on the 5th of that month we were sent on board a Dutch ship bound for Batavia, Though I have been eight months in close confinement, in a hot climate, I have kept my health in a most surprising manner, without the least indisposition, and am still perfectly well in every respect, in mind as well as body, but without a friend, and only a shirt and a pair of trousers to put on and carry me home. Yet with all this I have a contented mind, entirely resigned to the will of Providence, which conduct alone enables me to soar above the reach of unhappiness in a subsequent letter to his sister he says i send you two little sketches of the manner in which his majesty's ship pandora went down on the twenty-ninth of august and of the appearance which we who survived made on the small sandy quay within the reef about ninety yards long and sixty broad in all ninety-nine souls here we remained three days subsisting on a single wine glass of wine or water and two ounces of bread a day with no shelter from the meridian and then vertical sun Captain Edwards had tents erected for himself and his people, and we prisoners petitioned him for an old sail which was lying useless, part of the wreck, but he refused it, and the only shelter we had was to bury ourselves up to the neck in the burning sand, which scorched the skin entirely off our bodies, for we were quite naked, and we appeared as if dipped in large tubs of boiling water. We were nineteen days in the same miserable situation before we landed at Coupang, I was in the ship in irons hands and feet much longer than till the position you now see her in the poop alone being above the water and that knee deep when a kind of providence assisted me to get out of irons and escape from her end of chapter 5 part 2 recording by haley flag of texas